HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. This is Coral, host of Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Jack Chen is a facilitator, teacher, historian, curator, reorganizer, and dumpster diver. He co-founded the Museum of Chinese in America in 1979, where he continues to serve as senior historian. He's researched and written widely on Chinatowns and Yellow Peril, on the art and necessity of everyday intermingling and improvisations, and is current, currently grappling with issues like the dispossession of the Lenape people, how to talk about climate change, and why it's especially important for those in and around food to dream of sustainable change. So we have a lot to dig into. Um, welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you. So why don't we start with um, a dumpster you've died? <laughs> well, um, I'm losing things all the time, so I'm, I'm constantly going through the house and trying to figure out where things are, so that's maybe the first dumpster. I think there's something about being from a refugee family and having a sense that things are always being left behind. So my first big dumpsters, my first real dumpsters, I think, were... Uh, in Chinatown when I first arrived in 1975 there were lots of those big dumpster bins appearing throughout the streets of Chinatown and they were really emblematic of the dramatic changes that were happening in who was living in the community and who was being pushed out. Uh, Part of what happened by 75 was that the 1965-1968 immigration laws that finally de-racialized 
uh, Chinese immigration. Finally, Chinese could come here freely. Chinese laborers could come here freely. So finally, in 68, you have large numbers of Chinese coming from Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, even mainland China. And uh, they were starting to move in uh, as families oftentimes, but moving into the streets of old Chinatown, Mott Street, Powell, Doyers, but also the surrounding areas. And at the same time, a lot of the so-called old timers, the men who had survived exclusion working as uh, laundry workers, uh, ironing shirts for 10, 12, 14 hours a day, restaurant workers, they were starting to, in many ways, get older and, and die off. And every time there was uh, an apartment that became free, I would start finding things in dumpsters and in the garbage, which would be old levy suitcases, letters in Chinese, photographs. And what was sad is that with the change of the community, there was no sense that these were important people whose stories and histories we needed to keep and be able to um, keep really as part of a history and then later on perhaps uh, make them into uh, stories and help interpret them and understand what they're really all about. Mm-hmm. So what is it about, and we know Mott Street and Elizabeth Street as so central and so iconic of Chinatown, but um, why there in the first place? Yeah, well, that was one of the questions I had when we began coming up with the idea of starting a history project because, in fact, most people don't know why Chinatown emerged at that point. It, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was just adjacent to the docks, uh, especially the um, Catherine Market and the docks that were just adjacent. I mean, those of you who know about New York City and the island of Manhattan know that the island, especially the east side, were, was the place for a lot of the ships, uh, the sailing ships, the clipper ships that would be docking and uh, loading and unloading, unloading and loading uh, people, but also cargo. So the very first Chinese really began arriving in New York with the China trade and the American love, especially the aristocracy's love for fine porcelains, lacquerware, silk, things like that, which were really a a way of consuming uh, and gaining social status um, by having the latest porcelain tea set that was of semi-current style by European or British standards. It took a while to get those latest styles to the new world. By having those goods and using them, it was really a way of, in some ways, saying to themselves and saying to each other, the social networks that they were part of, that they had arrived as gentlemen and gentlewomen in the new world, and they they were as good as um, some of the elites that um, were still in Europe. So consuming these exotic and luxury items really was not any different then than it is now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack there, but before we get into that, um, I want to go back to the dumpster diving. Yeah. So a young Jack Chen is dumpster diving. What brought you to New York? Um, what inter- what generation of Chinese are were you then? Well, I was born because my parents were came here as refugees, and they came on a visitor's visa. Uh, They were not sure they could stay. They tried to talk to senators and various people. But because of the nature of the Chinese exclusion 
laws that were still in effect even after they technically were repealed in 1943, they realized that they needed an anchor baby. And that became me. So I'm the youngest of six in the family. I'm the one who was born in this country. And I enabled them to stay uh, in the United States. That law has been actively uh, contested now by lots of conservatives who really feel that um, the only rightful immigrants here are those who come from Europe and those who are Northern and Western Europeans, but all others, including Native peoples, uh, somehow don't quite belong here. So these, um, these contests over who counts as a citizen, who doesn't count as a citizen, has those fights have been going on for a long time. It's just not, not just now, but for a long time, from the very beginning, really. And is your entire family here? Well, you know, in the Chinese family, it's hard to say if the entire family is here, right? But my, my, uh, my, both my parents, who uh, were much older parents, uh, were able to eventually have all six of their children here. I mean, I'm the youngest of six, so I was the one who was born here. And my older siblings were old enough to have been my parents. Uh, they quickly soon had children, so very soon um, there are lots of um, of, uh, of of my nieces and nephews who were. I was just a year or so older than many of them, but the family started taking root in the United States uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, even with your within your family, it seems like you have so many histories and so many generations to document that it kind of makes sense that you would be then pushed or inspired to open or co-found uh, the Museum of Chinese in America. So Yeah, well, it's kind of scary. In fact, if that was the reason, I don't I think I would have <laughs> probably stayed in in uh, in biology and you know, genetics instead of uh, pursuing this. But I think it was the experience of growing up in this country in the Midwest. Uh, in a suburb, uh, Park Forest, which was like Levittown, one of the very early post-Korean suburbs, and having my mother tell me stories about what it was like in China, history of the politics. For me, the Opium Wars seemed like they were just like World War II. They they had just happened. I mean, that's how vivid she would tell me these stories and the impact and why they were significant. So she'd be constantly telling me about China and say, and and tell me and warn me, don't get too used to this country. We're going to go back to China. Uh, Why is that? Why was the the original plan to go back? Well, I think the hope was that... um, they would be able to go home and because they're refugees and um, that, uh, you know, this gets into the complicated politics of, of China, especially at that time, um, which I won't go into because that gets us to another rabbit hole. But uh, they were hoping to return to China and be back with um, her extended family. But uh, that never happened. And uh, I realized at a certain point later in my life that, wait a minute, we're not going back to China, we're here. And there was this dissonance of trying to understand the question of, well, growing up uh, with Chinese as my first language at home, spoken at home, eating Chinese food, we have to get food in here, and uh, then going um, going to suburban schools. And this is the time when Sputnik... Uh, and the new investments in science and new high schools throughout the country, but especially in the suburbs, was happening. So I was in a suburb where those who had been Jewish or Italian or Irish or Polish 
in urban areas moved to the suburb and effectively became white. So I was caught in this strange vortex of what it meant to be American and what it meant to be Chinese. And were we going back to China? Were we staying in this country? So I think, especially in the Midwest, that became something that, uh, that uh, I couldn't quite figure out until I went to college and until I actually eventually moved to New York to begin to feel that I could find a place such as New York Chinatown that had some history that I could connect up with in some way. Mm-hmm. We did an episode of a few, um, or last season, about Asian suburbs. And was Levittown um, primarily white, or were there, were there a good amount of Asian families as well? Well, uh, I don't know about Levittown. I, I grew up in a park, okay. a place called Park Forest, mm-hmm. and the racial politics are horrific uh, if we go into them. Of course, they deal with redlining. They deal with the building of highways and the automobile industry. In this case... It was actually a Jewish developer who had been part of the Roosevelt administration. And he had, uh, uh, as he left the administration, realized that um, part of what he was connected to was not just the redlining of urban areas, but also the building of highways as so-called part of the National Defense Network. So highways were being built, suburbs were being developed. He became a developer. And as a Jewish developer, he wanted to build a suburb that Jews could move into. So he did that. Park Forest, Illinois was one of those very early post-Korean War suburbs with a shopping mall outside and uh, houses that were all more or less the same and a small section of wealthier houses. And uh, as there were some Chinese, like my brother, uh, who had eventually gotten through school and uh, a degree, and he became an engineer, he's a mechanical engineer. He and a few other Chinese um, graduates from college asked if they could, as Chinese families, move into the suburb. These are all private developments. And um, this man said yes, you know, um, I think in part because of the Jewish experience of being a lot of the history of anti-Semitism, but also the death camps after the war. There was a, there was a different attitude about diversity and who could live where. Um, Before, there was still the impact of Jim Crow segregation that also impacted on Chinese a great deal and other people of color. Mm -hmm. So they they move in, you move in, and do you see um, your Chinese presence beyond the home, or do you get a Chinese strip mall? Well, I was related to most of the Chinese in our little community. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no Chinese restaurant until later on and that was in another suburb. So my exposure to Chinese culture was very much through the intimacy of family life and family meals, and also not having access to things like tofu or Chinese vegetables, and therefore my mother occasionally getting access to them, but also improvising with that. Um, So I had a sense that maintaining a Chinese identity was actually very difficult um, and that it kind of, the, the boundary for that was really within the household. Once you exited the house, you had to kind of figure out how to improvise, how to balance out with um, maintaining some sense of who one was and where one came from and what one felt comfortable with and a larger world that had no idea what this is all about. So before I interrupted you, we were talking about Museum of Chinese in America. So um, let's get back to that. What pushed you to open, and I'm guessing like a 
a desire to reconnect to that history, reconnect to those roots in a way that's beyond the household. Yeah, so it started out with the dumpster diving. It started out with the sense that the the history of everyday life and, and people uh, was not valued uh, by New York City. And, and that Chinatown itself was under siege, in effect, because of the legacy of exclusion. And this is a time in which Chinese had been uh, in the mid-70s, already in New York for over 100 years, but had not elected a city council person. That did not happen until decades later. So we began to, Charlie Lai and myself, we began to talk. Charlie was still uh, planning on going to med school. He was uh, at Princeton University when we first met. And we began kind of talking about the need for the new immigrants who are arriving to begin to understand what that history had been and for that the old timers also f- to feel that they could begin to communicate their stories to newer generations. And of course, garment, the garment industry began to really take off at that time too. So we were looking at everyday life of regular immigrants and how they were making a new life here and trying to help understand how garment worker life, restaurant worker life but also uh, laundry life, were all deeply connected through a history that most people didn't quite know about. So that was something that we could help participate in, but also be actively documenting people who had been through that experience. So that became the idea that we worked with, and we were able to, I, I had quit graduate school, but the one thing I had learned from graduate school was to how to write and how to write a proposal was something I could figure out. So we began getting grants to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really neat that you provided this space for um, similarly Chinese people, but of different generations, which I don't think most people understand is there's a huge divide and it's really hard for even those two generations or even three generations to talk to each other. And so um, what are some examples of how these two disparate communities use the museum to then communicate and reconcile their differences? Yeah, well, it's changed over time. I mean, we started the museum in 79, 80, so we're talking about quite a few decades now, and the profile of Chinese who are in Chinatown now has expanded enormously. The diversity of people from different parts of China has expanded, speaking different dialects has expanded. So all that's changed enormously. Uh, but I would say in the early days, I would some of my classmates at the University of Wisconsin would be from New York, Chinatown, and one person in particular talked about the so-called dirty old men that were in the streets of Chinatown. And she was part of the new, um, new kind of arrival generations. Uh, her family had, you know, working class, garment industry, New York, Chinatown but at the same time thought that the men who oftentimes may, she may have been related to, because many of them were from the same uh, Toisan or Seyup areas outside of the city of Canton, they could have been related, but there's no actual understanding and communication about how their histories and stories were deeply connected through uh, immigration laws, through region, through um, the occupations that they were pushed into, you know, taking on. So um, so for decades, really, this became the work of trying to build up an organization, both in terms of the documentation work, and we brought a team of people together to do that work who could speak different dialects and um, do different kinds of documentary work and then produce things that would then be involving the very people that we were uh, interviewing in uh, their getting a sense of the stories 
of the people that they're living amongst but didn't necessarily know about, right? Mm -hmm. So that became the, a very dialogue-driven process in which people were really learning about themselves and their families in a way that they had never quite had a perspective of. And this would be true for those who grew up in the back of laundries as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like we're so deep into the Chinatown um, examination that we have not yet defined what a Chinatown is. And I feel like even within New York, there's so many, so many Chinatowns. And so um, what are the defining characteristics of a Chinatown and who is a Chinatown for? I feel like more and more it's less for, or I don't know, maybe this is wrong, but um, less for the actual Chinese people and more for an outsider's understanding of Chinese culture. Mm, yeah. Well, that itself is also a complex set of stories because Chinatowns really emerged initially as places for Chinese businesses to help service the various laundry laundries, hand laundries that were scattered, thousands of them scattered throughout the metropolitan region. And on the day off, they could come and buy supplies, um, get their mail from their families in China, uh, send out mail, um, enjoy themselves, things like that. That's really how a Chinese quarter or a Chinese, you know, kind of commercial district first emerged. But then also during exclusion, Chinatowns became in some ways necessarily segregated protected areas that could protect them from some of the violence that was happening, the street violence being picked on, uh, but also in a really interesting, complicated way, I think the, those who had the means to develop uh, tourist shops and restaurants developed a way in which people would want to come into the community and uh, they'd be able to make some money from that process as opposed to having to um, try to venture out where there'd be a lot of racism still. Mm -hmm. So Chinatowns in many ways emerged during the period of exclusion and racism and became a survival mechanism in which uh, there could be some money coming into a place like a commercial enclave. Mm -hmm. In, um, in terms of the function of a Chinatown, do you feel like it's still inhabited and traveled by Chinese people, or is it for an outsider's understanding? Well, you know, the other complexity is that Chinatowns have never been all Chinese. So there's the, the deep desire, I think, of the mainstream, in this case, Protestant, Anglo-Protestant culture, to have this exotic other presence in the midst of the city. And that exoticism or that Orientalism, that Oriental other, some of it's romantic, some of it's really quite vicious and, and um, hateful, that other uh, in some ways plays a very important role in the life of the city uh, that's above and beyond the reality of what's there. So Chinatown takes on a larger symbolic role in which, um, let's say, you know, in, in the popular imagination, such figures as Fu Manchu or Charlie Chan or um, dragon ladies begin to populate the popular imagination in a way that had very little to do with the actual people who were there. But there was a need in the colonial mind and in the Anglo-Protestant um, settler colonial mind to create these kinds of images uh, because it helped to prop up their own notions of who they were, right? So Chinatowns took on these larger kinds of commercial cultural roles that were rife in popular culture, commercial culture. And that continues to this day. 
It does. And so what, what are some ways that manifest today? Because I feel like we were talking before about the newer generations coming into close contact with older generations and there being this huge disconnect. And I feel that same way when I go to Chinatown today and I can see all the icky ways that our cultures are represented and misrepresented. And so, yeah, what are some lasting implications or examples of the quote-unquote colonized eye? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm very concerned right now about the, uh, the trade tariff uh, wars, the kind of new code war, I think, that, that, that this president uh, is mounting. And it's really built on prior notions of yellow peril. And when we talk about yellow peril, of course, it's, it's not just about Chinese, but it's about anybody who looks to be oriental from an American point of view. Mm. So that would include Japanese, it would include Vietnamese, it would include many East Asian appearing type people who, in, from the American perspective, are the orientals or the Asians. If you're in France and you were had colonialism in North Africa and the Middle East, then the Oriental is much more of that, you know, configuration. So it varies from colonial Western culture to the next. But in the U.S., we really inherited very much the British perspective and also the Dutch perspectives of the Oriental other. So, um, so I think Chinese, especially in this country, have been, well, Japanese during World War II, obviously, and Chinese um, before and after <laughs> World War II have been very vulnerable to notions of, um, of being a, a threat, an economic threat or a yellow peril threat, a cultural threat um, to uh, the well-being of American society, of American security, of American borders. So the exclusion law itself was really the first law that established border patrols and IDs uh, way before um, Mexicans were thought that way. Mm -hmm. So the ongoing impacts are many immigration laws, uh, ID regimens, uh, eugenics itself, and eugenics policies were very much influenced by the Chinese exclusion laws. And it's not to say that all of this is based on Chinese. In fact, the anti-Chinese yellow peril was also related to the parallel impacts of, um, of uh, anti-black racism and fear of blacks, fear of black males in the popular culture. So you see a lot of parallel qualities and also of, um, uh, of attitudes towards indigenous peoples as well. So in many ways, I think what's we oftentimes don't think about is how, oh, Chinese are an ethnic group, and we have many ethnic groups, and somehow ethnicity and pluralism and diversity is what we celebrate in the city, but we tend not to actually understand the deeper, more truthful histories of various groups and how so much of it goes back to basic colonial relationships. Um, from enslavement to dispossession of lands, of native peoples, to uh, really dispossession of China and colonialism in China itself and how all of that had an impact on the immigrants who came over here. This is meant to be an Heritage Radio Network. We'll get back to this in a second. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. 
They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine & Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine & Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, Fine & Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries, you get the idea. Above all, Fine & Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. And we're back. Um, so a few episodes ago, Sarita C., who's a Filipino art historian, and I discussed the importance of decolonizing the eye in museums. And you talk about being um, motivated by decolonizing pedagogy. So can you talk a bit about what that means? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, an example of that, I mean, is, is the question of why there's so many Chinese restaurants in the United States. And uh, the general tendency is to think that, well, somehow that group of migrants are especially talented in that, or they're predisposed, and therefore blacks are more athletic and have more physical capabilities, then what's always said, that's always assumed, is that they're not as mentally advanced and capable, right? That's where the history of scientific racism comes in. Measuring foreheads, different races have different skills and abilities, so somehow Chinese have the predisposition to clean clothes, um, make clothing, make food, that kind of thing, right? But in fact, it really has to do with the exclusion laws. So we have this whole construction of Chinatowns as havens for your favorite restaurant and getting cheap food and uh, Americans really relishing in that, right? And that's part of, by consuming this food and using chopsticks and ordering with some kind of version of Chinese, you know, to a, your favorite Chinese waiter, somehow that's an emblem of your uh, worldliness, your cosmopolitanism, and your ability to operate across cultures, especially in a time before Americans had much money to travel much, right? So that became the traveling within the city itself. But in fact, the reason why there's so many Chinese restaurants is because the exclusion laws had certain kinds of loopholes in which it allowed for those Chinese who were merchants and therefore considered more superior to be able to come over. They could have families. Also, those who were students and diplomats uh, and teachers were able to come over. So if you had a business, you were able to uh, uh, come over, bring your family, have them join you, and uh, have children and have them count as American citizens. Otherwise, the great majority of people who were here were really stranded here and had a much harder time to grow and develop roots. So restaurants really fell into that loophole that Chinese, uh, and this is the recent research of people like Heather Lee, uh, who's at um, NYU at Shanghai, 
where she's looked at the patterns of how Chinese were able to establish restaurants and develop more restaurants. And she figured out that really that uh, by having groups of people uh, own restaurants and taking turns being managers, the managers were able to count as a merchant at that instance and be able to bring their families over. And then they would rotate who would do that. So by that uh, device, uh, Chinese were able to fight the racist exclusion laws and be able to actually proliferate, um, not just in place like, places like New York or Chicago or San Francisco, but also spread out to places where the taste for Chinese-like food, when I say like because that includes appealing to American tastes, which would be sweet, sour, salty, uh, fried foods, um, things like chop suey became a way in which that somehow represented something Chinese and exotic, when in fact it was really appealing more to American tastes than anything else, right? So by doing that, by being actually filling a niche in all sorts of parts of the food culture, especially early restaurant culture in the United States, Chinese were able to actually get around the exclusion laws and um, build something despite the, um, the racism and the hostility that was there. Have you heard of Lucky Lee's, the new restaurant that opened in Manhattan? Uh, yes, the one that's um, in the, it's near NYU, it's on University Place, yes. Mm -hmm. right. So I don't know if you know um, a whole lot about it, but their mission is to, or the marketing copy was all about um, making Chinese food that finally makes you feel good, that's not making you bloated, that's not too salty, um, and there's a lot <laughs> of, of backlash, but um, yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how that still happens and why uh, that still happens. Yeah, it's 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 um, there's constant there are constantly new versions of the same problem. Uh, Chinese food, in fact, is quite healthy. In fact, has vegetables. I mean, if you were to follow a Chinese diet the way that Chinese people eat it, actually, most Americans would be healthier. I think that than the tendency of eating processed foods and. Um, and uh, gaining a lot of weight through um, through sugars and things like that. But um, Chinese restaurant food is a whole different thing that has necessarily had to appeal to dominant cultural tastes and what people wanted. So as a consequence, uh, more salt, more fried things, uh, sweet things, sweet and sour pork, you know, in, in a really extreme kind of way, those kinds of um, taste palettes, which were really part of the American preference, uh, became more common in Chinese restaurants. And so then you have uh, people who do health studies and surveys and then say, well, Chinese food is not healthy because it's too greasy, it's too sweet, it's too this or that, and uh, with no historical understanding or context, really. So that's why it's important for us to unpack you know, these histories and where they come from and why they exist because it's never innocent. It's actually in a context. Uh, without that context, then people just say, oh, it's Chinese. Chinese food is that way. In this case, uh, the idea that those kinds of uh, wok fried foods are unhealthy, there's too much grease, that kind of thing, that uh, is a longstanding stereotype. I think it's probably less true now than it ever has been uh, because American popular tastes and what they're willing to pay for has changed. But Chinese food is still identified oftentimes with that older idea of a greasy kind of um, food. So marketing is all about differentiation. It's all about justifying why your 
business is superior to other places and why. Uh, other than the quality of the food itself, I mean, if they were saying our food is delicious, come and try it, that's one thing. But to say that it's somehow healthier and cleaner than most Chinese restaurants, in fact, is especially when the owner is not Chinese, right, is really a new form of racism, I think, and a new form of differentiation that is oblivious, naive, and ultimately quite uh, dangerous. So we were talking about decolonizing pedagogy, and so what does it look like to decolonize aesthetics, a way of life, food? Um, yeah, what are some more less heady, practical examples of that? Yeah, well, you know, working on food is kind of wonderful because in some ways it detoxifies. I mean, for me, I've been working for so many decades about the, uh, the, the racism and the difficult lives that people have had to have to survive and to... Um, to continue in this country and um, and the change exclusion laws and documenting that. I mean, all of that after a while is really exhausting and wearing because it's basically a relentless archive of fear, paranoia, and oppression and violence, which is horrible both for the for the mainstream culture and especially horrible for the people who are the victims of that. Right. So for me, I've really more recently turned towards focusing on things like food and culture building, um, which then is really the way in which uh, people who are forced into terrible situations are able to push back and create a life despite that, right? So that's certainly true for Chinese and Japanese Americans, but it's not limited to Asian American culture building. It's really something that's very much a part of the pushback that all those peoples who have been um, pushed into horrible positions, enslaved and formerly enslaved peoples, incarcerated peoples, um, Native American folks who I've been working with more recently, those stories and how food, aesthetics, taste, music, culture making uh, need to be understood and celebrated because that helps to recontextualize and rehistoricize um, the uh, toxicity that otherwise is dominant. Mm. Uh, so um, to me, both things have to be done, but after a certain point, it's just exhausting to focus on the, um, the worst parts of what's happened and continues, and to be able to focus on how can we connect up through foods, through basic things like music, through the pleasures that we all share as human beings, with the senses that we have, with the with the um, with the, our ability to taste and enjoy life, and our sense of connection to the natural world as well, right? So, how can we build on those kind of shared human qualities, and not um, be so focused on the the very toxic differentiation? and hierarchies that uh, have been really pushed upon us. And that's where eugenics has been especially dangerous and continues to have an impact on us today. And how does um, something like curation play into all of this? It, it seems kind of impossible to just be rid of it, you know? Yeah, well, at this point, everything is designed. Everything is prepackaged. We know from marketing that this is the case. But we tend to think that somehow when it comes to visiting a museum or listening to music or whatever, somehow that's, some, that's more the kind of natural genius and expression of creative people 
of individuals. But in fact, these are all social systems and social processes that are highly refined and require counter-organizations and decolonizing efforts to unpack them and then also to create alternatives. So I think a lot of people over the past number of decades have been involved in that pushback effort. It's not a matter of some lone individual genius who is finally able to make it through the culture and become the person who designs this or that building or this or that memorial or becomes this or that playwright. Of course, those people have incredible talent, but it's really the, the pushback that is more systematic that really begins to represent peoples who have been systematically denied and not represented that have been forming organizations and alternatives and have been protesting but also have been creating new organizations and new cultures that reinterpret uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, just one small example is the idea of what our tongue can sense and a certain kind of very rigid notion of uh, flavors, sweet, sour, you know, salty, uh, peppery, and the fact that umami has emerged now as a category, which is really more consummate with um, Asian ways of tasting, but also I think many cultures' ways of a savoriness, um, something that is deeply memorable and something in some ways that is kind of wired into what we all crave, right? That that begins to, in effect, decolonize although it can be recolonized very easily, begins to decolonize certain notions of how classifications and organization actually operate. And without the introduction of uh, this reality of umami as another sensate quality, it constantly disempowers the subtlety and the dynamism of, let's say, many Asian foods and the aesthetics that Asians seek to achieve through the simple act of cooking. Uh, The other example is something that Grace Young, the cookbook writer extraordinaire, has uh, written about and documented in which wok cooking, for example, is a broadly democratic process that uh, so many Chinese share from poor to middle class to wealthy. And that one of the aesthetic qualities that everybody tries to achieve, well, especially Cantonese try to achieve, is this idea of wake, you know, the, the breath of the wok, as she translates it, which is, in, which is where you have something very fresh, let's say bok choy, very fresh, just from the garden, and you flash, um, stir-fry it, and you season it in a way that, um, that captures um, this kind of intangible breath of the wok and if you eat it right away you can actually taste the difference and that becomes an aesthetic uh, quality that one cherishes and appreciates now we're not talking about having to spend a thousand dollars for that dish we're talking about this is a popular activity that if you know how to cook and you know the right restaurant to go to it doesn't cost much to have access to it so there's a popularity and a democracy in this kind of uh, sensate culture that Westerners tend not to understand or acknowledge and therefore automatically assume the stereotypes of yellow peril or you know the way China is stealing things now uh, supposedly that um, that it's a totalitarian culture and all people are oppressed 
Um, well, whatever truth there is to it, it also totally hides the fact that on a popular level, on a basic level, uh, Chinese culture is actually, in terms of food culture, extremely popular and extremely democratic and really committed um, to um, a culture in which people eat and have enough to eat. And there's a generosity in that culture that anybody who's actually knows Chinese people knows as part of the hard wiring of the way people are and the way the culture is. In our remaining time, from one weary topic to another, um, no. if we could talk about climate change, how, what brought you there and how has your previous philosophy and approach, why, does, why, does, why climate change? Well, uh, I've been wanting to work on climate change. I've been knowing that with the ozone layer thinning and holes developing that we're quickly in the zone of, of uh, cascading effect. Uh, so it's no longer that the, at the point in which we're going to become, uh, the climate is going to change. The climate is already changing. And, and the more it changes with every degree that uh, thinning ozone layer creates on the Earth itself, the more difficult it is to be able to reverse that. Um, so it's so large um, a phenomenon that I think it's really quite hard for people to grasp it. Uh, certainly those who don't have the, um, haven't had the exposure to understand, let's say, the uh, scale of things, both in terms of largeness or the smallness of scale of, let's say, how mosses are being affected or how the fact that, I mean, one thing that blows my mind is that lobsters are literally walking northward <laughs> in, in places like from Massachusetts, uh, you know, Cape Cod, um, the, you know, in Maine, in the, the, bay, the bay that's, you know, by Maine going up to Canada, they're literally walking northward because the temperatures are changing. Now, something like lobsters walking northward <laughs> or moose being more vulnerable to uh, the ticks that prey on them because the winters are not as cold as they, they had been, that kills the ticks. Uh, these kinds of subtle changes that are really indicators of these larger, massive, dynamic systems are things that we tend not to pay attention to. And as a consequence, we get distracted very easily. So what confounds me is that we are so distracted by the pyrotechnics of the current uh, administration that we're actually not grappling with the major issues that are surrounding us and that we're quickly reaching these tipping points. Now, these, of course, all have to do with food and food sovereignty, uh, climate justice, and the fact that now we have climate migrants as well. Uh, so a lot of the instability of the world that we have now, whether it's from Puerto Rico to New Orleans with Katrina to the instability of the Middle East and the sheer desperation of people for um, becoming refugees and being forced to um, lose their cultures and their foodways and their, their sense of what everyday life is that gives them pleasure and gives them meaning that's link, that links people to thousands of years of, um, of their experience. Those displacements are incredibly de destabilizing 
and incredibly dangerous. So food and sharing food and eating people's food that you've not been exposed to, I think is an incredibly important way for us to begin to, in a a sense, slow down and appreciate um, the human variety and the human connections that we have. And by slowing down to do that, I think it makes the connections between differences, across differences, despite the culture that thrives on differentiation and marketing that way, politically or commercially. Somehow we have to work against all that to actually be able to make connections and to, in some ways, um, grapple with the injustices that have never been quite resolved. And in my work with um, Lenape folks, but also with uh, those who have been enslaved, um, food and gathering together around a generosity of shared um, food rituals, but also eating meals together, is at the foundation of coming to terms with these differences. So um, we probably don't have enough time now to talk about that, but for me, so much of the history, the toxic histories that we've had to deal with, we need to have everyday cultures, music, uh, dance, food, um, the basic pleasures of life be something that reconnects us and enables us to understand that um, things that are being said politically are not necessarily true from a person-to-person point of view. So how does that mutual respect and connection affect change? Well, I don't think we can have change happen if, um, let's say, African Americans who are constantly being beset by violence, by incarceration, um, by um, by the assault on their uh, on food security, for example, in their neighborhoods, by housing, all those things. That I think a real danger is when you have groups that are basically next to each other, living next to each other, at each other's throats to the degree that they're not able to talk about what the larger problems are. Um, So certainly we have instances of that constantly happening between Asians and African-American communities uh, in urban areas across the country. We have a history of that now. How can we tackle things like that? But in some ways, by tackling that, which takes a lot of work, it's kind of like climate change. It takes a lot of work to undo something that shouldn't happen to begin with. So how can we be proactive in organizing across differences and really finding those shared uh, realities? And I think for me, young people and the activism that happens now amongst younger people is especially hopeful. So people going to school together, people committed to going from schools into communities and working together across apparent differences, um, whether it be along LGBTQ lines or uh, food uh, activism lines or um, protests against the pipelines, those kinds of cross-cultural, cross-difference alliances are the key. And of course, when we're doing that work, we always always have to be eating as well, right? So how can we... um, create that culture of inclusion and generosity, and also understand that it is something that 
is what life is about. It's the pleasure of everyday life that we have to be embracing and not just doing these things as a way to get by, you know. So how can um, the listeners of this show, what are some practical questions or actions that they can take to come across or to connect across differences? Well, um, I've been learning a lot in working with um, people like Vincent Mann or Brent Stonefish or George Stonefish, who are all uh, Muncie Lenape, about the incredible biodiversity of this land that we think of as the tri-state region. And that the very places that were critical for them in terms of the watershed, where life in some ways emerged in the most complex ways and how they managed that land and grew things and, and caught things and built weirs, um, fish weirs to capture eels during a certain part of the year, that there's an incredible rhythm to this region. There used to be whales and 18 other species of fish, the size of whales to smaller, that would be migrating up and down the Hudson River. That incredible biodiversity of, of shellfish, of, of the um, nut trees, uh, not just the three sisters being cultivated, but throughout the region, which is incredibly biodiverse, that biodiversity was there in 1609 when Henry Hudson arrived. And it progressively became dismantled to the point that basically uh, native peoples, Lenape, were dispossessed so that it wasn't just being pushed off the land, it was also their way of living in relationship to the land and waters through seasonal cycles was made impossible through the institution of creating fences and private property that supposedly was purchased. It was never really purchased. They suppose they really had negotiated access to these lands and continued usage in the way that they had traditionally used them. But that insight about the connection to the land and the cycles of growing and harvesting and prosperity that everybody could gain together, that social commitment to a shared livelihood, those are insights and knowledges that we've short-shrifted and lost. And that in the extraction economies of basically just um, hunting all the beavers possible and shipping them all, the furs, the pelts, to Europe to make as much money as possible, that kind of extraction approach basically is what has been the problem with depletions of host species of birds and fish and animals. And um, so all of that's connected, right? And I think is really the native perspective of the world and that everything is alive, that the wind is alive, the rocks are alive. Everything is alive and we need to respect and connect to that aliveness is um, not just a, a sensible ecological perspective, but it's also an important philosophy about what life is about. And it's not about accumulation and constantly making more and more money. So I think we're at a point now where a lot of old cultures need to teach us the wisdom. We need to reclaim the wisdom of what those old cultures are about. And food, in many ways, is at the center of that. On that incredibly dreary note, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today, Jack. Happy to, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.